So we're in a section of Isaiah. Now we've been, we've been preaching through Isaiah for, well, since the fall, since September. And we'll be in Isaiah until probably the end of July. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a while, but we're at the halfway point today. This is exactly the halfway point. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. So we've made it this far. Now it's all just downhill. So we're, we're making it. And um, here's the thing where we're at in this particular section that we're in. Isaiah is made up of a number of different kind of themes or sections that, that uh, he's trying to get across. In this particular section, which really goes through about chapter 35, um, it's, it's all about how God has the power to save us, right? That, that he has invited us to be saved by turning to him. But, but it's not just this hope and a prayer that we give to him that he might save us. He's reassuring us in these chapters that he actually has the power to do that. It's not just that he wants to save us, but he actually can save us. And so that's what we've been seeing over the last number of weeks um, here. Um, But today in particular, chapter 33 hits on a really important issue, which uh, which is addressing the question of how does God's grace have the power to meet us in our times of failure? So every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that, right? It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in the book of Romans. We know that we don't live up to God's holy standards perfectly. We, we can't. I can't. You, you can't. Um, and I hope you believe that. You may not at this point. That's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, but, but I hope that you will see that we, we do need Jesus to meet us in our time of failures because we all have moments of, of slipping back into sinful behaviors. We have moments of doubting and denying what he, who he is and what he's done for us. We, we, all, we all struggle. And, and so what chapter 33 particularly addresses is that question of how does his grace powerfully meet us in our failures? That's the question that Isaiah, really that the Lord through Isaiah answers for us. So um, to set, set up the, the f- background of this text, because just jumping into it, you know, we, we won't necessarily understand the whole background. I think there's a good, uh, good bit, bit of information elsewhere in the Bible about this particular chapter, or at least the, the events surrounding it. And if you, so if you quickly, you don't have to turn here, but you can go to 2 Kings uh, chapter 18 and 19. And we're not going to read through all of this. I just want to give you kind of the context of where we are in the book of Isaiah and why God speaks specifically uh, to the issue of failure in this chapter. It's because this chapter comes on the tail end of the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19. So here's what happens. Um, we, ha- we meet this king, and we're going to meet him uh, even more so in the next uh, few chapters. Uh, this guy named King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the king during Isaiah's uh, you know, job as a prophet or his, his position as a prophet. And overall, he was a good king. Actually, in chapter 18, the overall assessment of Hezekiah's uh, kingship is positive. Verse 3, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That, uh, so giving the overview, the big picture of Hezekiah's king's kingship, uh, he did well. He, he did much better than his father. Um, and, and so 
here, that's good, right? That's positive. But that doesn't mean that Hezekiah perfectly ruled and reigned. He made some big mistakes. And so here's what's happening. We've already talked in, in previous weeks about how Israel has been trying to keep the Assyrians from attacking them, right? The, the Assyrians were this big, powerful nation, um, and they were coming in after Judah, and they wanted to take them and destroy them. And so Israel's freaking out, even though the Lord has told them repeatedly through Isaiah's prophecies that this is not going to happen. Uh, I will protect you. I will, if you turn to me, there, there will be safety in me. I will take care of the Assyrians for you. They didn't believe that. And so they started trying to make these deals. Um, and first it was with Egypt. They tried to make a deal with Egypt. And Egypt, um, you know, didn't pan out. That didn't work out. So, so the whole plan that we've been looking at over the last two or three Sundays has been kind of thrown to the side because Egypt's help is worthless. They didn't come through. They're not going to be of any help. So the Lord is doing this to make Israel realize that he's their only hope. No one else can help them. So he's making everything kind of fall apart for them. Now, this is where the second plan comes in, right? Egypt's fallen apart. That plan's not going to work. So what's plan B? It should be turn to the Lord, which really should have been plan A, uh, but it, that's not, unfortunately, what happens. Look at what, uh, let me see where we can start here. Um, how about we, yeah, we'll start in verse 13. It says this, and this is chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, I think that's right. I'll just pretend it's right. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So, so here Assyria is pushing in. He's a, they're, they're attacking. They're taking their cities. And look at what happens. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. So he's saying, I, I'm wrong. You're right. But please leave. <laughs> and he says, whatever you impose on me, I will bear. In other words, name your price. Name your price. We'll, we'll give you anything you want. Just leave us alone. So he starts to barter with the king of Assyria. He's trying to get Assyria to back away by trying to pay them off. Look what happens. The king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, a talent was a measurement uh, in the Old Testament days that would have been equivalent to about 75 pounds. Okay? So I don't know math, but 300 <laughs> times 75 is a lot of silver, and 75 times 30 is a lot of gold. So, so he's basically just saying, give us everything you've got, all your money. Hezekiah, verse 15, gave look at this, gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. He gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah <clears throat> gets worse. He stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So this, this is, by any metric, a colossal failure, right? This was sin. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Hezekiah stole from God 
to pay off an enemy that God said he would take care of for them. So instead of trusting the Lord with what he promised, Hezekiah decides to take all that belongs to God, the gold from the temple, the silver from the treasuries of the, of the Lord, and he paid off this king. But here's where it gets worse. Um, the plan doesn't actually work. It backfires. We look at verse, uh, down to verse uh, 28 of 18. And here we meet this guy named Rabshakeh, who's a spokesperson for the, the king, an envoy, to speak on behalf of the king of Assyria. Here's what he says on behalf of this. He says, here, uh, this is verse 28, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat from your own vine and each of you will have your own fig tree and each of you will drink water from your own cistern. So here's what's happening. The king of Assyria sends his messenger boy and tells them, and he's telling Israel, don't listen to your king. Hezekiah wants you to trust in the Lord, which I think is kind of a, a stretch anyways. But, you know, maybe that's where Hezekiah got to. He says, but don't trust in the Lord. Don't believe that Hezekiah can help you. Don't think that the Lord can help you. Assyria is coming and you're all going to be destroyed unless you bow down to us. And if you do bow down to us, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get everything your heart would ever want. You're going to have your own well. Like they don't have to share wells anymore. That sounds like a great deal. You get your own well. You get your own vine for your own grapes and your own fig tree to eat from. Like he's trying to make them believe that, that if they come back to, to Assyria and love them and re- revere them and pay taxes to them, then they'll have this great life. Of course, it's all a lie, right? It's like any other politician who promises you the world. We're in that season, y'all. You know that's true. <laughs> everyone on every side is going to promise you the world to get your vote, and that's just, they're never going to deliver. We all know that. But we, we go through this rodeo every two years. Um, nonetheless, this is where he's at, right? He's, he's promising them the world if they just bow down to the king of Assyria. So what happens? Well, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, we see Hezekiah's response. I know we're skipping a lot, but we got to get to Isaiah here. So let's, we're just going quick. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, heard this message, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now Hezekiah comes to the point where he finally, actually comes to the Lord, where he should have gone to begin with. He's now realized that all of his plans to save his people without the Lord's help have come to nothing. He tried to get Egypt to help them and Egypt failed to, to come to their rescue. He tried to pay off Assyria with all the money and all the, all the stuff from the temple and everything he could try to barter with and then they backstabbed him in the end. They still took the money, but then they betrayed him. And now he's realized, now they're trying to woo his people to Assyria and he's got to do something. He has to go to the Lord. So now that's the framework that we have to look at as we get into chapter 33. That's the backdrop. 
And, and so here we are, we're looking at Israel's plan and they failed to get Egypt's help. Uh, king Hezekiah f- paid off the king and then, so he made this shameful and foolish decision and in the end he was betrayed. But here's the thing, we all do similar things. Obviously not the exact same things, right? We're not in, we're not kings. We're not uh, in a military conflict right now at this, you know, at least we're it's shaping us in this way, right? We're, but we do these things. We, we, here's the thing. The Bible tells us that we belong to God. The Bible says that our bodies are not our own. We, we were bought with a price. Jesus says that um, when he was asked whether you should pay taxes to Caesar, he said, well, whose inscription is on the coin? And it was Caesar's picture. He said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Now, what he's saying there is that we are the, we have the image of God on us. And so God owns us. We should give ourselves to God. Right? That, that's, that's where we are. But we oftentimes use our minds, our hands, our hearts to chase after what is not God and what what doesn't honor him. We all fail to perfectly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's the bar, none of us meet that bar. And so that leads to the question, how in the world are we to stand before the Lord and have a relationship with the Lord if, if we can't even meet the, the bar? How does God's grace meet us in the midst of this? That's where we, that's where we go. So let's read verse, uh, verse 1 and following of 33. And this chapter will lay out three reminders. I hope they're reminders. Maybe they're new truths to you. But most likely they'll be reminders of how God meets us in the midst of our failures. And I want to kind of piggyback off of each of these and take us to Romans chapter 8 because I think there's, there's a correlation between the points that are being made. Um, and, and obviously, I think you all know this, we, we only have the time we have. So there's a lot in chapter 33 that we won't touch on, but we will get to the, the big points. So number one is in verse one through four. Let's read it. He says, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Now he's talking there to Assyria, okay? So that that makes sense in the context of of what they did, right? He's calling them a destroyer because they've come in to to take these cities. He's called them a betrayer or a traitor because that's what they did. They betrayed their their plan with Hezekiah. They they turned their back on Hezekiah after he gave them all their all the money that they asked for. Um, so so he, God is saying, you are going to, Assyria is going to pay for what they've done. There's a promise that Assyria is not going to just walk away here without any issues. But, but then God turns, or Isaiah turns to really where our hearts need to be. In verse 2 through 4, it says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, and locusts leap, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. 
Now, in those four verses, we see a couple of things. We see that in the midst of our failures, God is gracious to us, which will be touched on throughout this chapter. Um, But notice what he says, particularly at the end of verse 2. He says, Be our arm every morning, our salvation in times of trouble. To be someone's arm was kind of an analogy for being their strength, for being the, the protection that they need. I think this is a reminder that, that the Lord wants us to hone in on. It's this, that, that even though we colossally fail to do what God wants us to do, God's protection in our failures is still there. God keeps his people. God protects us in our failures. That's great news. It's great news. Because we don't have a God in heaven who just is ready to zap you with a lightning bolt because you made him angry. So the, the fact is that Jesus Christ on the cross took all of the guilt that you have in your life. Jesus took that metaphorical lightning bolt of God's wrath so that you don't have to. And so what God is for you as you are in Christ, as you've trust in Jesus, is he is your protector in the midst of your failures. He's he's not your judge anymore. He's your father. He's your savior. He's your arm of protection. And we see this actually in Romans 8. Um, You you, you don't have to turn there because I'll I'll just read it. But uh, Romans 8... I thought I had my bookmark there. I don't. Here it is. Um, here's, here's what it, starting in verse 26 and 27. L- listen to these words. Um, it's, it's incredible. It says, Likewise, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. Now, what is weakness in this context? Um, I I think weakness can be a pretty broad term and and it can mean a lot of things. But we know from chapter 5 of Romans that the word weak can actually refer to sinfulness. So Romans 5 says that at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly, which is synonymous with weakness in that context. And so here's what Paul, I think, is saying in chapter 8. He's saying that it's in our failures, in our inability to live to the standards we ought to live, that, that the Spirit helps us. And how does he help us? Look at what it says and goes on. It says, for or because we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, that is the believers, according to the will of God. Here's what Paul's telling us in in these verses. He's telling us that God himself, the Spirit is fully God, We believe in a trinity. The Bible teaches about a trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, 
uh, members of one God. How that works, I don't know, but that's, that's what the Bible teaches. And so you, here you have the Spirit of God himself praying for you in your weakness. How incredible is that? That when, when God sees you in your failures, your struggles, your sins, your temptations, he's praying for you. He's praying to keep you in the love of God. He's praying to draw you back to repentance. He's, he's praying for us because we don't even know how to pray, not as we should. You, you might think you're a good prayer. Most of you probably know you're not, right? Most of us would say we're not great at praying. We, we, we want to be. But here's the assurance that even when we are failing to pray as we should, when we're not even interested in praying for our own hearts to love Jesus, God's praying for those things. He knows what we need and he prays. I mean, that's like, there's no, there's nothing there between you and God, right? There's just you and him praying for you. That's amazing. You don't need a mediator because you have Jesus as your mediator. So we see God's protection in the midst of our failures. Let me put my bookmark here so I don't have to keep finding it. But let's go back to chapter 33. Let's read verse 5 through 12. This is where the second thing, and again, there's a lot here, so I'm just going to cherry pick one or two things. But um, verse 5 through 12 says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Think about that. Now, this is not really the point I'm going to make, but this is a really important line. The, the people of Israel were living in very turbulent times. And you and I are living in turbulent times. And yet the Lord is the stability of our times. What a good reminder. But that's not the point I'm, I'm trying to make, so let's keep going. <laughs> um, It says, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now, so that's describing kind of the outcome of all of this stuff with Assyria and what's happening to Israel. It's just, there's a lot of brokenness here. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of devastation. These people are living in very, very hard times. But look at how God speaks into the midst of that, verse 10 through 12. It says, now I will arise, says the Lord. The Lord shows up just when he intends to, which is usually when we have nowhere else to turn. So now that everything has been just done away, like Sharon is a desert and everyone's mourning and languishing, now I'm coming. We're, we're at a point where you have nowhere else to go but to me. Now I'll rise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up and now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. The breath, your breath is the fire that will consume you and the peoples will be as if burned to lime. Now, like thorns cut down, 
they are burned in the fire. Now here's where we're at in this. I, I think this, this idea that's repeated a couple of times in these verses is this idea of the Lord being exalted. Being exalted means you're lifted up and you're, you're worshipped. Um, and I think that that's what we're seeing in this as we look at our failures and how does God meet us in our failures? Well, he uses our failures as a means of exalting himself. And that's, that's kind of counterintuitive. But it's, see, it's when we hit rock bottom that the Lord becomes for us all that we need him to be. And we actually turn our hearts to him more so in the midst of failure than in the midst of success. It, it's actually easier to forget the Lord when everything's going well than it is when things are going poorly. And so the Lord's sovereignty is shown here. His his exaltation is displayed in our failures. And that God will actually use our failures to bring glory to himself in the end of all things. That's amazing. So when you look at um, back at Romans 8, we see another couple of verses here that, that point us to this. I mean, it's, it's there, and I think it's important that we hear these words. Verse 28 through 30, it says, so this is coming right on the heels of what we just heard about from the Spirit. Now it's this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see what Paul's reminding us of. It's that same thing that Isaiah is trying to draw people's hearts to as well, is that in the midst of our weakness and failure, God works these things together for good to those who love him. That's the, that's the piece that we've got to keep in mind. If you love him, then everything works together for good. And everything includes the bad things. We... we are glad to believe this when, when everything's going great, but we especially need to believe these things when things are not going great because it's all things that work together for good according to his purpose, according to what he wills and has planned and how all this comes together. And then he reminds us of why this is. It's because of his active sovereign grace to save sinners. He says that he predestined us. Now that is a loaded word that I know a lot of people struggle with, but here's, here's where, why I really love this, this doctrine. And it's biblical, so we, whether we love it or not, we need to believe it. But it's, it's this, this is the truth, that God has loved us when there was nothing lovable about us. That's why I love the doctrine of predestination, because it's, it's God looking down on me and saying, that, that dude has got nothing that I'm impressed by, but I'm going to save him. And that's what God does for each of us when we're drawn to him. It has nothing to do with our abilities or our impressive, you know, uh, impressiveness or our goodness. It is all about 
him and his grace to us. And so he takes these people and he calls us and we, we respond to him, right? We respond to his call. And when we respond to his call, we're justified. We're made right with God. We have a, a reestablished relationship with him. And those that are justified will be glorified. We will finally get to the end and we'll be like Jesus. We'll be like him. And so that's just a beautiful reminder that God is sovereign to be exalted in our failures. Let's go on to one more thing here. 13 through 24. So this is going to be the the longest chunk, but uh, bear with us here. It says, Hear, you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks, up, walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, so, so here we are. Let me just unpack what we've seen so far. Um, it starts with this question that, or the, this, this call to see what God has done, right? If you're far away, look at what God's done. If you're near, acknowledge his might. And then he, he talks about these people that are struggling sinners who, who, are, who are not there. And he says they're trembling, they're, they're afraid. Um, and they... And then it asks this amazing question, these two questions. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us could really stand in the presence of God without being, you know, destroyed by that? Who could really get there? Who can, who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Now, he's not talking about hell here. He's talking about the glory of God. Who can stand among the glory of God? Who can do that? And then he answers the question in verse 15. He says, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Is that you or me? No. That's Jesus, right? Like, that's who fills these words. That, that's who actually perfectly does all the things that are in these verses. So the answer, so here, this is, this is again, this imputed righteousness, this fancy word for Jesus gives us all of his holiness and, and he takes upon himself all of our sin. That doctrine is here again. Because we can't stand among in the Lord's presence and his, because we're sinners. We can't do it. But he could, and he did. He did for you. He did for me. He stands in the place of sinners so that we can actually have a relationship with God because the righteousness of Christ is in us. That's huge. We got we to gotta get that. Let's keep going. Verse 16, it says, he, who, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. And so, yes, this perfect Jesus is going to be able to live perfectly before the Father. And because we're in him, because we're in Jesus, verse 17 is applied to us. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. The only way that we can behold the king in his beauty is if we have the righteousness of Christ in us. Because who can stand in eternal burnings? We can't. We can't live in that. We can't. So what do we need? We need the righteousness of Christ 
who lived perfectly for us so that we can see with our eyes the beauty of the king, that we will see a land that stretches afar. It says, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who is counted? Where is he who weighs the tribute? Where is he who has counted the towers? You will see no more of the insolent people and people of obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad streams. A place of broad streams. I just lost my place. And what verse was I on? Somebody who's paying attention. 21, thank you, thank you. Broad, stream, broad rivers and streams where no galley, I'm glad someone's paying attention here because I'm not, obviously. Um, where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ships can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mass firm in its place. So again, you're failing here, you can't, you, you can't even keep your sails up. Keep the sails spread out. Then, then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And, and here's, the, here's the outcome. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. So here's the thing. Here's, where, here's what Isaiah is reminding us of. He's, he's giving us a picture of what will happen as the gospel takes roots in our heart. And, and we, we see Jesus as the only one who can walk righteously and uprightly before the Lord. He stands in our place. We, because of that, will see the glory of the Lord and experience this perfect forgiveness of our sins. Here's the reminder that in the midst of our failures, God is faithful and just to forgive us. He forgives us in our failures. We see in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, if we, if we walk in the light, if we confess and acknowledge that which um, we, we have failed to do, if we do that, that's our part, right? To confess our sins. Then what's his part? His part is to be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we see him meet us in our failures through forgiveness. We see this in Romans 8 as well, um, verse 31 uh, through 39. It doesn't specifically talk as much about the forgiveness of sin as it does about God's eternal love for sinners. Look at what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If, so there's the question. If God's for you, and Paul's point is that he is for you, so then who can be against you? And here's why he is for you. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying God didn't even spare Jesus for you. He let Jesus go to the cross. He, he had Jesus die for sinners. So then, so then what's, what's there to, uh, to, for, for anyone to be against us? God has already given us everything 
And he's for us in that. He asks another question, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Here's the thing. Who's going to accuse you of something? That's, that's the question, right? Who, who can do this? Who can accuse you of anything? And here's the answer. It is God who justifies. So we have an accuser. Satan, that word means accuser, among other things. There's lots of nuance to those words, but he, he does accuse us. But there's nothing that that accusation stands on. It's lies. It's smoke and mirrors. But what he does is he slips in and he goes, oh, see, see what you just did there? See how you failed at that? God must not love you. You, you just lost it. You lost his love because you did that. Those are the kind of accusations that we hear. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul's reminding us that there are no charges against God's elect because God is the one who justifies. God said, you're right with me. End of sentence. Boom, it's done, right? We're, that's the point. It says, who can condemn? Who's going to condemn you? Paul's answer Jesus Christ is the one who died. In other words, Jesus Christ was condemned for you. So who can condemn you? Who can condemn me? Jesus was condemned for us. More than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. So now you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit interceding for us. That's pretty good. I got, we got some good odds on our sides there, right? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives a whole bunch of scenarios. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let's be reminded today that there are no accusations that can stand against you if you're in Christ because Christ was taking upon all those accusations in himself. There is no one who can, who can condemn you before the Father because Jesus is the one who died for you. And, and so all we get, all we have is forgiveness. And that's why Isaiah can say at the, in the last verse, no one in that place will say, I am sick. You can't say that if you're in Christ because if you dwell there, if you dwell in Christ, forgiveness of your iniquity is what you experience. We have forgiveness and grace in God. It is this beautiful reminder that, that in our failures, God protects us. He's praying for us. He's, he's working these things for his sovereign glory and he ultimately forgives us and offers us nothing but, but love. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't separate us from himself. Nothing that, that anyone else can bring upon you is going to have any effect because God sovereignly protects us, loves us, and forgives us and he, all for his glory. So let's rest in those things. Let's, let's find our security in those things. Let's find our hope in those things and we will we will all move forward as gospel-centered people if we rest in them. Let's, let's do that. And let me pray for us as we, as we conclude here. Father, we, 
we are so grateful for Jesus and how you've, you have brought him to be for us the condemnation that we deserved. And you made Jesus take the accusations that we rightly should have had against us. You brought Jesus to the cross. You raised him from the dead. We praise you, Father, for all these things. We pray that we would live in these truths and that we would move forward in the gospel knowing that no one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us because you have justified us and you love us and that nothing that we experience on earth can separate us from your love because you secure it in Jesus for us. We pray that these things would rest in our hearts and we ask that the rest of our service would bring you glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.